The Bible is an indispensable part of the furniture of a Christian lodge, only because it is the sacred book of the Christian religion, the Hebrew Pentateuch in a Hebrew lodge, and the Quran in a Mohammedan one, belong on the altar. And one of these, and the square and compass properly understood, are the great lights by which a mason must walk and work. The obligation of the candidate is always to be taken on the sacred book or books of his religion, that he may deem it more solemn and binding. And therefore, it was that you were asked of what religion you were. We have no other concern with your religious creed. Albert Pike Welcome, everyone. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills. Joining me today, the Reverend Adam Kuntz, to talk about one of our favorite subjects, Western esotericism. Adam, how are you? Very good. It's good to be with you. And our respects to Zelwyn. He has uh, turned into a bear, finally and fully. <laughs> he is, he is and he is, he is hibernating, and we, won't, right. we may not see him until the spring thaw. He's exited this dimension of existence, for sure. Thanks for everything, buddy. Zelwyn, officially fourth dimensional being. We'll see you on the other side, wherever it may be. <laughs> so, no, anyway, I'm good. Good, good. How is the uh, weather in uh, lovely Fort Wayne? Well, it is uh, it is cloudy and gray, to your surprise. So, yeah. <laughs> Very much. Uh, Central, Central Illinois is that way, both in um, weather and demeanor this time of the year, as the legislative session is reconvened. So... <laughs> Always fun. You know, we need we need Zelwyn to get back. We need to find a wizard what can change him back so we can get interesting weather posting once again. Right. He's always got something going on in the tundra. That's right. You know, uh, you know every day is a, is a new struggle in Siberia. Right. Well, all right. So this subject is going to be fun. It's one that we've intended to talk, to talk about for some time now, but we seem to always be delayed or, or, or suffer some technological error or something. And so we're finally getting to it, and it's the subject of esotericism, what specifically is known as Western esotericism. And Adam, why are we even talking about this? It sounds weird. Yeah, well, it, I mean, it sounds weird because it is weird, but the term Western esotericism is really an academic term invented to talk about all of these things that go on, we might say peripherally or parasitically connected generally to Christianity. So connected to Western European religious traditions. They'll, they'll sometimes talk about Islam or Judaism or mention them. And you'll hear later how Judaism does play a role in this. But generally, we're talking about stuff that goes on in Western countries that is specifically religious and often organized, but is not Christianity. Right. And so look at things like Freemasonry, the Masonic Lodge, uh, Rosicrucianism, the Kabbalah. Th these are the types of things that we're talking about. Secret societies and underground religious movements, I guess you would, you could, you could say. Right. A very broad topic. So therefore it's very hard to pin down and to get one cohesive definition. So if there's anything that ties these together, even if it's just broad strokes, what, what would that be? 
they do often have metaphysical ideas in common that are opposed to Christianity. So often they will be universalistic. They'll have some idea that the true God, usually in the singular, can be worshipped under a variety of different names in different times and places. That idea is specifically often called perennialism. And it's probably if you went to the New Age section in a Barnes and Noble, that's most of what you would find would be some version of the idea that through a variety of different religious traditions, the actual truth has somehow been passed down through the ages. Freemasonry is really just one of the most public and organized forms of that idea. Certainly. And probably the one we're more likely to come in contact with in the United States at this time. Right. Right. I think it's fair to say that they share an enchanted worldview and a a fantastical worldview to one degree or another. Right. So it's not, it's not modernism in that way. They don't believe in, in just a purely empirical approach to things for the most part. Right. And the history of things that we now call new age, really since the 1960s, which changes the religious landscape, especially of America and Europe, because immigration law changes. And you can now have communities of Hindu religious teachers permanently living in the United States. But what's interesting is you have ideas like that, sort of pantheistic ideas, the thought that nature itself is God. These all pre-exist the 1960s. And so a lot of stuff that now goes under the heading of New Age or has incorporated sort of Eastern religious practices was actually somehow being done in the West just under a variety of different names prior to the 60s. Yeah, certainly. This is kind of where it gets tricky and where, I mean, even in a, in a podcast of this length, we can't really get into it. It's A lot of it rests on the idea that this is ancient knowledge that was suppressed. Right. It's often secret knowledge or hidden knowledge or otherwise rejected knowledge. And so by rejected knowledge, we mean the Orthodox religious bodies, and in our case, the church, have rejected these errors and these teachings, and yet these teachers have held on to them and, and present them as valid. Yeah, that's right. And, and you, can see, you can see versions of this even in things that are not explicitly religious. So if you think about how most people think about Salem witch trials, that will be a version of a, a sort of a heroic telling of Western esotericism where either nothing was actually going on, that's sort of the psychological angle, but a lot of times people just won't have a problem with their being witches at all. So the, in kind of a callback to the Halloween episode, one thing to realize when you're thinking about Western esotericism is that because it, all, it has existed alongside Christianity, maybe as long as Christianity has been in Europe in some form, right? Because of that, it has a relationship which always has to tell an alternate story. And sometimes when you're telling an alternate story, you have to start telling lies. And so claims to secret or occult knowledge, hidden knowledge, will often be made in order to justify their position. Yeah, they, they appeal to that. So the, the Masons will, will claim lineage all the way back to, say, the Temple of Solomon. Oh, yeah. Yep. Uh, the, the Rosicrucians, you know, uh, all the way back to Egypt, depending on which particular school, for example. And really... You know, you can take a look at and really see where these philosophies start to emerge. 
And in the case of something like, say, Wicca, for example, we can actually point to its origins, and right. it's it's invented in the lifetime of actually perhaps some um, you know members of the audience of this show. It's not that old, right? What Masonry has is it is older, or Rosicrucianism, several centuries old by this point. And so if, if something's allowed to exist long enough, if the ritual is convincing enough, it it really is persuasive to a lot of people that it is legitimately ancient. Right. As we talk about this and what are basically syncretistic movements, you know, that are seeking to pull from various different traditions and religions and meld them into something, what is the aim of most esoterics? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess if you if you want to put it in Bible terms, they are generally offering another gospel, and it will often appear in Christian religious terms because those are understandable to Western people. If someone came in and just openly taught in terms of Kabbalah using a bunch of Hebrew words, it really wouldn't make sense to people. There's only a certain amount of non-Christian religious vocabulary, even today, that people use, especially people that don't go to church or anything. They might talk about being centered, or they might talk about meditation, but there's not a whole lot of non-Christian stuff that people are familiar with. So these movements, I think, are, I've used the word parasitic a couple times, they, they have to employ Christian imagery, or sometimes, especially in the case of the Temple of Satan, the inversion of Christian imagery in order to make themselves understandable to people. Right. And let's talk about imagery for a bit, because this is where you're actually exposed to this type of esotericism and you don't realize it. Yeah. Or you might not realize it. Right. Because it is so prevalent in art, in science uh, to, to a degree, which we'll talk about, and certainly, though, in popular culture. So uh, what would that look like? What's an example of an esoteric symbol that we see in, in popular culture? A lot of imagery in our public architecture, especially in Washington, that is Egyptian, is usually esoteric in its origin. That is usually hidden from the public simply because the public is not aware of Egypt's role in Western esotericism. But Egypt is a place that is generally thought of as the source of all magic. This is a tradition going all the way back into antiquity. And it's no different, especially in things like Freemasonry and other esoteric movements that obelisks, the all-seeing eye, inside a triangle, pyramids are used to express esoteric ideas and images. Right. And... These images are not placed there by accident or purely for aesthetic purposes, although they might be. And in some cases, people just think that this eyeball looks cool or this <laughs> owl or whatever. Right, right, right. And we do see it in things like music, album covers. And it used to be that kind of thing. Okay, here's here's Led Zeppelin's album, and they're going to put these symbols on there. And because they're kind of openly into this sort of thing. Right. Nowadays, it's it's almost become even more mainstream to where you have Baphomet statues that, because of court orders, are allowed outside of courthouses and things right. like that. Right. Baphomet being the horned demonic god figure that we see in a number of these esoteric movements. Right. So certainly in pop culture, in the lyrics used in music, in movies, 
and images in pieces of art. And I mentioned science earlier. All I'm saying is Google the uh, opening for the Gothard-based tunnel uh, that CERN built if you want to see an example of pure esoterica on display, just absolutely satanic ritual happening at what is ostensibly a quote-unquote scientific organization. Right, right. And so symbols and art have power. The magic question aside, which we'll get to later, these symbols have power. The collegiality among these societies certainly has some degree of influence, at least socially. And regardless of if you believe in what, say, Masonry teaches or Kabbalah or whatever, the practitioners do believe in that. They are living their lives in accordance with that and influencing their groups in that way. So the magic question aside, there is still power and influence behind these things. Right. And you kind of have to ask yourself, you know, like, okay, George Washington was a Freemason, but he's also purportedly the father of, of this country. Why is his monument a giant obelisk, which is not really a shape that we use in Western architecture? It's not, we don't, we don't build them, you know, on churches or something. They're not crowned by obelisks. Why wouldn't it be, I don't know, a statue of Washington on horseback or something like that? Instead, it's a giant obelisk. So, right. Yeah. You know, I I think, and, and you'll often find that if there is a free Masonic temple in a city, it's usually close to city hall, or at least where city hall originally was. This is not really coincidental. Even even the layout of a city like Washington, D.C., you know, is, is influenced by that. And this isn't tinfoil hat stuff either. These are just right facts. I mean, you can't get around, you can't get around geography and, 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 and symbols that, uh, you know, occur everywhere. Right. This is not about like what happened to TWA flight 800 or anything. Yeah, exactly. And, (laughs) or or, or little St. Huey. (laughs) We'll get there. But the point is that, Sometimes our our discussions about these things become so over the top and that they become ridiculous to people so they're not listening to us. So initially we have to start out with the basic things. So, you know, your average rank and file Mason is probably, for example, not deep into the uh, esoteric writings of the Masonic Lodge. Right. But he's he's at least entrenched enough to know what it's about. But in a lot of our country, your average Mason sees no conflict between Christianity and the Masonic Lodge. Even though the quote at the very beginning showed that, at least in one example of Freemasonry, they see virtually no difference between the holy books of of the Jews, Christians, and Muslims. So just swear on whatever one you want. So you have a generic God that you're allowed to believe in, and we're just using one example, you know, of a secret society here where, okay, that's fine. And so you'll have a, a community that's in large part just Christian. And so they, they confuse the two or they see no conflict between the two. Right. And and it's particularly important for us as Missouri Synod Lutherans to talk about, because if you'll take a look at most of your church constitutions, it will have a provision that members of secret societies are not permitted to hold membership in our congregations. It's because our Missouri Synod forefathers understood the uh, underlying philosophy behind these these lodges. That's the bigger reason why we're opposed to secret societies. Right. There are other reasons, but the big one is the philosophy that undergirds them. 
right? It is it is anti-Christian. Even something that that even a belief that would say, well, we would respect Christianity and we would consider the Bible a holy book. Anything that denies the exclusivity of salvation in Christ is, by definition, anti-Christian, right? Yeah, and I think that practically speaking, what often occurs when esotericism takes on a social dimension is that a secret society is able to influence things in a social or political way that an open group such as the church actually cannot. And so you you find from revolutionary times onward, the gathering of politically influential men in the United States, especially from most of the churches that we now call mainline, having little to no objection to Freemasonry, gathering into lodges or societies of other kinds like the Society of the Cincinnati. And what's interesting to me about these is that there there are places where you can plan and control that you can't in public. There are also places that usually have very ornate ritual. It's kind of a strange thing, right? Because when you think about English-speaking Protestantism, ritually, it's pretty plain most of the time. But secret societies are generally extremely ornate, maybe as ornate as a pre-Vatican II mass. Yeah, certainly. And it's it's part of that appeal to ancient tradition. And and they do claim that their rituals are ancient. Right. That they're that they're being pulled from Egypt or ancient Israel, the, those those kinds of things. Yeah, the, the influence thing is, is very true, and it's not just theoretical. They These societies have had influence, um, and we don't even need to look at a national scale or a global scale just yet. But even on the local level, there are still towns in America where you really need to join the lodge if you want to get a job. Right. Or or if you, if you want to be elected, the, those kinds of things. And it, it's not as influential, arguably, not as influential as it used to be right. as far as your average American citizen, but it, the uh, the influence is still very much there. Right. You mentioned and, and are correct that the church is not closed. Our teachings are not secret. The closest thing we ever had to that was simply shutting the doors to non-communicant members in the ancient church. But it was no secret what was going on back there. Right. That was for the sake of, of orderly uh, conduct and fencing the table. That was not simply to hide a ritual, right. although we may well have been accused of that. So th- there, there is nothing secret. There, I promise you, if you join one of our churches, there is no tiered level of membership, unless you count, <laughs> unless you want to count right. voting or non-voting member, I suppose. Ah, but yeah. <laughs> you know, that's the platinum level. Yeah, yeah that's, <laughs> that's right. Level. Read the constitution. Yeah, it's a little, still a little bit different from uh, a, you know, the sacred architecture. We'll say. Right. So yeah, uh, there is no, there's nothing hidden, and we don't deal with darkness. And I think that part and parcel the hidden knowledge is an idea of things being obscured and hidden away in the dark. Right. And the only thing that's done in the dark is sin. And Christ is light. So everything is exposed by Christ for what it is. And the Christian is illumined by the light of Christ. And in the light of Christ, no thing is hidden from us. Well, we've got to take our first break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken.
The word of the Lord says, Get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth. You can check out all of the Word Fitly Spoken podcasts on Podbean, iTunes, or your favorite podcast app. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grills and Adam Kuntz talking about esotericism. Well, we had a really fun time in the first segment, uh, really unpacking a lot of this, seeing what exactly esotericism is, how it actually is kind of all around us in a way. And let's now move on and talk a little bit more about some of the characteristics of esotericism that we might have missed in the first segment. Yeah, we talked a little bit about the idea of uh, metaphysical correspondences or a metaphysical idea common to all of these different traditions. There are actually several of them, only one of which is that is perennial or secret tradition. Another really big one, and if you're interested in this, the the guy to go to on this is Wouter Hanegraaff, which you know, it's spelled just like the Bible Answer Man, so you should all know. Yeah, it'll get very confusing when you Google that. The <laughs> second Bible Answer Man, Walter Martin, still the Bible Answer Man of our hearts. <laughs> but but the Hanegraaff is the uh, yeah he's the professor of the history of Hermetic philosophy, which is a real thing. It's a real somehow. thing, and he did it. Um, he himself <laughs> is unlike Albert Pike or George Washington, is not actually a practitioner of Western esotericism. So he's just a guy who studies it. But what I think is interesting is that he identified this idea of nature being alive and there being correspondences between nature on the macro scale and human beings on the micro scale throughout a variety of traditions, including Kabbalah in the Middle Ages down to today, as well as things that you might not have thought about as esoteric, like Waldorf schools run off a philosophy called theosophy by a guy named Rudolf Steiner, who's often right. uh, thought of as one of these figures. They they all share this metaphysical idea, the idea that everything is potentially divine, if only you can unlock a way to access those characteristics which are mirrored within your own life, within your own body, within your own soul right. or imagination. And this is this is yeah, this is good because okay, this is this is causality. So for them, everything is is connected, so you don't have to necessarily have an immediate cause like you would, say, in a, a Newtonian sort of approach to things. Right. Right? So you don't need that a physical force to overcome the inertia of an object, for example. One domino, the, do, the first domino does not have to fall into the second domino to knock down the tenth domino in the line. Right. So it's it's everything's connected, and because everything is connected – we can influence things in that way, and the the hidden knowledge and the rituals are about how to influence that. Correct. How to how to, how to access that. Rather. That's right. That's right. And that and that is why it 
sometimes when it when these different traditions are studied they're thought of as strange or irrational or whatever and there is something that is true about that but one connection to see here is that magic is much like a, a large amount of scientific research which is that fundamentally it's trying to gain power over nature a power that human beings have in whatever given case never had before. So you will find strange things, such as you mentioned with the CERN research facility in the mountains of Switzerland, having a demonic statue uh, inside the facility that was used in the dedication of the facility. Also in the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California, since its inception under a man named Jack Parsons, who was a practicing Satanist, you will find this common drive to have what appears to be inexplicable control over nature. And this is very different, obviously, from Christianity, because Christians can see things as connected, but connected by God's providence and in God's time and decision, right? We don't, they're not connected because we have found some way to control everything. It's very different in esotericism, where things are potentially anything could be under our control. Right. And I think that to continue on with this scientific discussion, it might strike us as odd. You know, why would a person who is into what is ostensibly magic and ritual, ceremony, metaphysical things, unseen things, why why would they also be empir- empiricists, right? Right. I think you, you've hit the nail on the head. It is power. And that these people actually do perceive some sort of power in these rituals. And that's that's the interesting question is, to what degree is there actual power here? And that that's a dangerous question for a Christian to ask who is not firm in their faith. Because if we, if we see that perhaps there is some power, we can only see it so far and say, but it would be the, the influence of demons. Right. It's the influence of dark forces. It's there's nothing good that would come out of this. There's reason, you know, 576 why a Christian shouldn't be <laughs> dabbling in this sort of thing. Right. It, it's not merely superstition. It's when you join with these groups, you are opening yourself up to their ideas and potentially up to dark things that that we should not be playing around with. And they make themselves especially appealing by being something that you mentioned in the first segment, which is syncretic. That is, they, right. they, they are, they're always trying to join a religion which is, in its basic teachings, practices, rituals, not Christian at all, to Christianity in some form. And I, I've observed this myself, especially with, in my experience, mainline Protestants, is that mainline Protestants will will have you know Bible readings and communion and baptism in church, but then they'll also do kind of weird stuff as either Freemasons, although more contemporarily, you'll have like Reiki healing in the in an Episcopal church, or you'll have sometimes Eastern, but sometimes sort of culturally nonspecific weird healing rituals or practices be very common among the people. And this kind of folk magic stuff is the is sort of a, a a disorganized version of the same thing that we're talking about with Freemasonry or the Church of Satan or Wicca as organized groups, which is they're all trying through magical rituals generally to gain or maintain some kind of power 
that human beings are not actually given. Correct, correct. And we could outline how all these groups um, do it a little bit differently and their aims are a little bit differently, or a little bit different, rather. And perhaps in future episodes, we can do that. You know, some of them are obviously overtly magical or believe in that enchanted world. When you get over into the Church of Satan, that gets a little tricky because mm-hmm. there's two or three different main ones. Right. And Levian Satanism basically just claims to be Atlas Shrugged with a liturgy. <laughs> uh, and Yeah, I mean, and, and, in, in case libertarians weren't completely exploded by 2020, <laughs> you right. should be. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and it's it's open. He he I mean, I'm right. not even right. making that up, right? right. He's yeah, I read this and then I invented a satanic religion around it. Right. So so for them they they try to portray themselves as very secular, right. but with but with ritual. But that's not the case with many other Satanists and things like that. And that's not to excuse, of course, what the Levian school would be doing. It's still very much evil. But they do try to downplay at times the supernatural. But I think they do that also as an appeal to uh, certain people in the world. So right. it's basically do what you want, a la Aleister Crowley. Right. But we're going to disguise it under this uh, libertine, modernistic kind of philosophy. Man, we and you know that's the first time we've mentioned uh, Crowley in in the in the in the podcast so far. I honestly thought we would get to him a little bit uh, quicker on this. But. <laughs> well, Cro- Crowley to to dance around him just for one second more. Something something interesting to notice is that a lot of things that in Crowley's time in the early twentieth century were practices of esoteric groups exclusively, promiscuous sexuality, very strange. Let's just leave it at that. Relationships to <laughs> to their families, both right. the ones they came from and the ones they formed. What's interesting is that a lot of things that begin as attitudes within Western esotericism and are extremely uncommon in somewhere like the United States in, say, 1890, are now common ideas that people have, such as all religions are the same. You should love whomever you want. Do what makes you feel happy. Right. The power of positive thinking. Right. Right. The, the way that you think about something determines whether wh- what reality is. These are all things that have moved from being extremely fringe to being far more normal than Orthodox Christianity is for most people. So this is also something else to notice about the subject is that although the subject matter is confusing, it's historically changeable, there are a lot of strange figures such as Crowley who move back and forth between intelligence agencies and religious practice, setting up different cults at different times and places. It can all be sort of confusing and seem sort of random and weird, but its influence over time is greater than, say, the influence that the LCMS has had on mainstream American culture. Yeah, certainly. Certainly. And I do think it's in part due to their use of symbol, ritual, and the um, friends that they made in high places. Right, right. And and so that, that certainly helps. I mean, even down to like Area 51 and things like that, it's just so bizarre how these, how esotericism is influenced, you know, in, right. in some of this. Right. Do we even, and I've said Area 51 and everybody's yeah, said it. Yeah. I've said it, but it is, you know, um, well, what's the name before it's Area 51? Groom Lake. Groom Lake. Yeah. There you go. 
Google well, it, folks. Yeah. So I mean, I, so not so. Okay. So I mean, there's a lot of like you know odd speculative stuff we could say in the next you know eight minutes. But, but here's something that is neither odd nor speculative. Jack Parsons, whom I mentioned earlier from you know Jet Propulsion Laboratory NASA fame, Jack Parsons. You know, this is just a matter of you can read his biography, an academic biography. He was performing. Crowleyan rituals at Groom Lake before it became Area 51. So again, a lot of this is an issue, not so much of like, what do you think about all this? Do you think it's all real in the same way that you think like baptism saves, right? Because the Bible says right. that. that's not really the issue. The issue is what do these people who have objectively historically mattered and do matter, what did they think they were doing and why did they think they were doing it? Exactly. And that's that's the principle behind this. They yeah, they believe, regardless of whether you want to, you know, ignore what they were doing or not. They believed in what they were doing, right. or believe in what they're doing, as is the case. You know, we haven't even mentioned Mike Aquino yet. <laughs> well, so, he was, he, yeah, he was, <laughs> he was in the Halloween episode, if I remember correctly. That's and, right. He gets, a, he gets a shout out, and yeah. we we should come back to him at at a, at a later date, but. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think that the issue of what people believe is very important when you talk about the historical claims, because if you're actually interacting with somebody from one of these traditions, okay, whether it goes under some sort of new age guise or whether it is older, such as Rosicrucians or Freemasons or you name it, right? So something that's important to know is that they'll often claim a historical lineage which yeah. which yeah. people who study this stuff are generally going to reject as real. Right. Well, I mean, we like Rosicrucianism, for example, they say that their origins are Egyptian, Brahmic, Persian, uh, ancient Arabian, mm-hmm. and Pythagorean. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't even know how that works together, <laughs> but nevertheless, that that's what you see. Right. And that's maybe what we should discuss. Are there claims legitimately ancient no i agree and almost without exception because the thing to notice is how how over time how eclectic pretty much any esoteric tradition is going to be it will pick up whatever it needs to pick up and you can see this explicitly if you tour and you can take tours obviously you can't see the rituals within a masonic temple Often the the rooms will be decorated in vastly different architectural styles. There will be a Moorish room to symbol right. symbolize wisdom from the Arab world. There will be a Gothic room. There will be a room designed to look like the Jerusalem Temple to symbolize ancient Israelite wisdom. They will do that very consciously in order to show you that they're drawing on all the traditions of the past and somehow are laying claim to them. None of this is really verifiable. That's why using a term, and I've seen people in our own circles do this, so this is why I'm saying this one specifically, don't use one term to try to identify everything that is esoteric or weird. Don't right. you, don't say that everything is Gnostic somehow, because it's really not. And Gnosticism itself is like Western esotericism an academic attempt to capture a bunch of different movements that have something in common, but not a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Couldn't have said it better myself. So Gnosticism is the word that's bandied about today more than anything. I think 10 years ago, Platonism 
was the other one. Maybe a little bit more than ten, yeah, Platonism right. or Neo. Everything uh, some Christian guru didn't like was Platonism, right? If you recall, right. And so now it's just Gnosticism. And what 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 will it be? Um, what will it be ten years from now? We don't know. But yeah, that's a very good point, and that's why it takes us so long to draw out these discussions because we're trying to accurately explain things. When we could just look at a at a weird bullheaded statue in a lodge somewhere in some small town in North Dakota and go, well, that's that's just esotericism, and move on with it. Well, right. why is it there? What are they doing with it? Right. <laughs> Where do they think it came from? Right. Those are the pressing questions. So, yeah, do, we don't really believe that they have any legitimate claims to this. But the Masons are kind of like the Mormons in that way too. Their ritual they claim to derive from ancient traditions found in ancient Israel, biblical Israel. So in large part, it certainly seems like the Mormon temple rituals were borrowed from the rituals used in the Masonic Lodge. Right. And I want to talk maybe at greater length in the next section about the relationship, especially between early Mormonism and Freemasonry, because I think that it is actually helpful to think about Mormonism as a kind of Western esotericism. The, the, the big one that people don't really think of, because most Lutherans certainly, are, which is most of our audience, are going to be more familiar with Mormons than with Jews, practically, is Kabbalah is, is actually right. a form of Western esotericism that is vibrantly practiced among Orthodox and especially ultra-Orthodox Jews down to this day. Absolutely. And then for a while there, it was being picked up by Hollywood celebrities. Yep. And, you know, there's a shocker that there would be an influence there. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about Kabbalah and we can get to it some more after the the break. But we've got a few minutes here. Tell us what Kabbalah is. Kabbalah is a medieval Jewish practice that, like lots of these things, claims an ancient lineage. And it involves a combination of the mystical values of numbers and those numbers being keyed to the Hebrew alphabet to exercise control over creation, sometimes to the extent like in the Sefer Yetzirah of controlling creation in the way that God controlled the the earth when he created. So Kabbalah will, I mean, it, it really is just garden variety magic control over control over sex, control over attraction, control well, over the, money. The, probably, probably the most famous Kabbalistic story that people might know is the Golem, right? Right, where a rabbi creates someone to protect the Jews of Prague out of the mud. I mean that that story, that specific story, is almost undoubtedly a fabrication of the 19th century. But that's okay, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, it pre well, 19th century. Yeah, that'd be yeah. fair. But nevertheless, that's the most common that's, uh, popular culture depiction that you right. have. That's right. And, I, and I'm sure you know, they totally weren't trying things like that 500 years ago. Adam. No, I, so. I well, no, I, I, I think they were. It's just that that specific story is probably invented. But if you are an ultra Orthodox Jew, you are pretty much required to believe it. They, they do Gollum apologetics in the way that a lot of Christians will do apologetics about Noah's Ark, like here's how it would have really happened. And all of that is based on Kabbalah. So when you're talking about Kabbalah, and then there there are variants through time of Christian Kabbalah, whatever that means, 
those are always attempts to control nature through the magical use of Hebrew letters. Right. Well, I just want to go back to the golem just for one second. Yeah, sure. just, just because. So, yeah, that, you're talking about the particular account in Prague. Right. But the idea of manipulating creation, even to making stuff, it goes back into earlier Kabbalah. Right. And that that's the principle behind it. It's probably just a more modern manifestation of that idea. Right. But even in the Talmud, they they call Adam a golem. Right. And and so the, that idea goes back much earlier than that. And I, I do think you have a, a few um, folklore tales, you know, yeah. folkloric tales of that. But yeah, the specific Prague golem, sure. Fabrication well, of the right, and the and the and the issue here is that the 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 Talmudic accounts of rabbis making golems is is that man can become what God is. Yeah, exactly. My, my point is is I just wanted to clarify there that we're not saying that because the golem of Prague dates to eighteen whatever means that 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 idea is is not part of Kabbalah. Right. right. I didn't want that to get lost. This idea is inherent to the system that man can become godlike or at least possess some of God's power. Right. So anytime you see, you know, a celebrity in a Kabbalah bracelet, that's what they're trying to do. So <laughs> think, exactly. think about that. Right. Well, all right. We'll be right back with more word fitly. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The Word, front and center, in doctrine, in history, in life. That's the mission of A Word Fitly Spoken. We've got more on the way. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Adam Kuntz talking about esotericism. Well, it's been a fun episode so far talking about the Masons, the Kabbalah, all of that fun stuff. Uh, one of the things we touched upon last segment that we want to spend some more time with, it might even be the whole segment. Hey, we don't know. Sorry, Wicca, if we don't get to you. But it's Mormons and Masonry and how that's particularly applicable to us in American society. Adam, what do you think about that? It's always worthwhile talking about Mormonism, both because the two of us are obsessed and I am potentially genetically related to these people, but but also because it is the fastest growing religion most years in the United States. So any any way that you can understand more about Mormonism is probably going to be pretty profitable to you, honestly, wherever you live in the US. It used to be more of an intermountain West thing now it's pretty much all over the place. So it's helpful to see Mormonism in a variety of ways as an example of Western esotericism. Some things that people will already know about Mormonism will make, I think, more sense within this framework. For instance, the idea of multiple, really infinitely regressive and infinitely progressive deities. 
that is an idea which yeah. is really not all that strange within a variety of these magical traditions. Certainly not strange if you think about Kabbalah, where God's power is offered to man for the taking through the right ritual. Mormonism really isn't that strange. It only looks strange when you think of it as somehow an offshoot of Christianity. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's it's better thought of as an offshoot of of, of masonry yeah. in, in a way. And it does the same things that masonry does, or a lot of these esoteric movements do. It takes f- Christian trappings and puts them into the context right. of something entirely novel. Right. And although, it, you know, you could say, well, Smith came out of the Methodists and it was the, really the Methodists' fault. Like that's, I mean, we can blame the Methodists for a lot, but that's just not fair. <laughs> I mean, not entirely fair. I think you could, you could maybe make sort of make the case, but when Mormonism, you know, begins to develop, you start to see what it's borrowing from. Right. And from its early days, remember, this is very, very important that Joseph Smith is prophet, seer, and translator. Yeah. And I think that's that's very important understanding this that Mormonism, like the esoteric movements, are about finding validity in ancient rituals. To the point where Joseph Smith is claiming to translate ancient papyri and ancient books, I mean, the golden plates we know about, but even other stuff. And he's claiming to validate or, uh, you know, finding proof of his revelations in these ancient texts through his, through his supposed gift of translation. Written in a language called Reformed Egyptian. Yeah, which does not exist. It does not exist, but it is significantly from Egypt. And I think when when people yeah, blame it on exactly. when people blame it on the Methodists, that's honestly to accept the standard Mormon narrative almost right. at face value, which is, oh, look at all these different Christian denominations. They're always bickering with each other, blah, 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 blah. This was obviously a complaint within Joseph's family prior to his birth. And it's a complaint that you find throughout New England Protestantism. But that doesn't mean that it is really the source of Mormonism's distinctives, right? So, right. so there are things about Mormonism yeah. that I think look, especially Sunday morning, there's Sunday school, there's people in suits and dresses. It looks like traditional low church American Protestantism. It really is not. And it's, it, there's, a, there's a book by a guy named Dan Vogel, who is some kind of Jack Mormon, about mormonism and the magical worldview it's a great book and what it what it helps you to understand is that the things that joseph smith was doing in upstate new york and in northwestern pennsylvania were not in that place and time actually unusual so to understand that western esoteric practice always exists alongside christianity but just to just to clarify, yeah. Vogel is Joseph Smith making of a prophet. I believe Michael Quinn is early that's Mormonism right. and the magic right. world. Yeah, you got Michael it. Quinn. Okay, so I'm confusing. Yeah, I'm confusing Vogel with Quinn. So it's the Quinn book that I'm talking about. It's easy to do. They both they both go after the same. So it's a pretty niche topic. It, well, so it's, yeah. But here, you know, here we yeah. both are. So um, <laughs> it's only niche until everyone on the podcast knows about it. So what the, what they help you see is that things like treasure hunting claims to have found long lost books especially about ancient america lots of things about early mormonism and and about mormon practice that to this day is they'll say it's not secret but it really is i mean you, you're not allowed to know about it unless you are sealed in the temple yeah well, there's a reason why you only see some of this through smuggled documents and hidden cameras right, right. 
all of this stuff is not unusual in its place and time because a lot of these magical practices, searching for divine secrets, long lost truths, plates buried in the ground, things, seer stones, seer stones all of that, all the, coming from Egypt with an ancient heritage, all of this is actually rather common. Right. And we have a bit of that in the first Joseph Smith episode. If anyone would like to go check that out. If Zellin, you want to link to that in the show notes, that'd be great. Uh, wherever you are, wherever Zellin. you are, in whatever dimension. <laughs> so. Yeah. And, and this is why, though, when you get something like the Salamander Letter, which is a hoax, a very, very convincing hoax. I mean, it even fools the Latter-day Saints in the 80s. It's it's basically a, a forged document that says that Joseph Smith received instructions about how to dig up the golden tablets from a talking salamander, and that it involved necromancy with his deceased brother's body. The reason why that was able to be so silly sounding, but to convince even Mormons of its legitimacy, was because that actually is not uncommon as far as folk tales go <laughs> in upstate New York right, at the time. Right. I mean, or at least these practices. I mean, the, the talking animal, you know, salamander just makes it even more bizarre, I suppose. But the idea that you would take, say, the hand of a corpse and use it in a magic ritual right. is even something that macabre is not entirely unknown to American folklore right. and folk ritual. It's helpful in this way, I think, to just to see Mormonism as simply the one of the most successful versions of Western esotericism, rather than to see it as some sort of offshoot of Christianity. There's a way in which that's true, but it, it really doesn't capture the essence of Mormonism's teachings, especially about the nature of godhood, nor of its practices. Certainly, and its practices are in large part borrowed from the rituals of the Masonic Lodge. Joseph was inducted into the Lodge, and not long after that, the Nauvoo Temple Ceremony begins to, to look like a Masonic uh, Lodge or a Masonic Lodge ritual. Now, that's interesting because, well, was it was it more Masonic in Nauvoo than, say, it was in Kirtland, Ohio? You know, it certainly develops over time, and we do know that from history, yeah. that the temple rituals in Mormonism change. But the goal is always the same. It's right. performing these rituals for the sake of certain spiritual benefits, right? right? Sealing one to a wife for all time and eternity. There are secret code words. There are secret knowledge passed down in these temple rituals, much the same as you find in a Masonic ritual. And so you, you can't just pretend as if these things happen coincidentally. Joseph's going to say, well, there's a lot in masonry that's true, but they actually stole it from us thousands of years ago. That's what he's going to say, us being the Mormons in that case. Because that is what Mormons teach, that their rituals go back to ancient biblical time, and they were just lost. And so they had to be recovered. Well, what do the Masons say? Ours go back to the time of Solomon, and we have just secretly preserve them underground for all these centuries. Right, right. A few differences there, but the spirit is exactly the same. Yeah, the spirit is the same. I think Masons, Masons are usually more forthright historically about the, uh, the amount of disappearance and like, like what is lost, especially between the Middle Ages and, say, the 18th century. Mormons doctrinally are committed to an understanding of revelation that means that 
reconstructing Joseph Smith's life is generally extremely important because understanding who Joseph is and when and how is similar to Christians understanding who Jesus is and when and how. Yeah, you have to understand that for them, you know, much as we would say like the Protestant Reformation, right, for us, we'll say the gospel recovered, whatever. For them, they believe in a gospel restoration, that it was totally lost, and they use gospel in a broad sense as well. And yeah, very broad, (laughs) and and that it was, you know, restored by the prophet Joseph Smith, so that all of this hidden knowledge has now been rediscovered and is being re-implemented. So it's not only just an, an academic exercise, as if Joseph Smith dug up the golden plates and then put them in a book, because that would be neat archaeologically. No, it's for the express purpose of implementing this new religion, or as they see it, restoring the true religion. And that includes the the handing down of new knowledge, in the case of new revelation, the handing down of previously hidden knowledge, the handing down of rejected knowledge, and, and so, you know, as they um, misunderstand the Trinity, and then handing it down primarily through ritual, right? In many cases, right. especially for the for the deeper teachings of the Mormon Church. So, so the, the historical development, understanding like what is Joseph into in New York that's different from Ohio, that's different from Missouri, that's different from Illinois. All of that is is actually very important because it has to do with what is binding down to today. What is the nature of the restored gospel? So that the differences between different Mormon groups in the present day will, or between factions within the mainstream LDS, will often be what appear to us as historical disagreements. But because the history of any prophet is itself, as it were, sacred history, those historical differences do matter a lot. And, and this is something that on, in certain places in Mormonism you can actually see more clearly than others, because we talked about symbolism early on in the episode. The Nauvoo Temple, which, which they had to rebuild because right. it was destroyed, right. they basically try to more or less rebuild it close enough to the original one, but they keep a lot of the external symbols. So you actually have pentagrams in the windows, the external windows. Pentagrams, which are also found not only in Freemasonry, but also in Satanism. Exactly. You know, five-pointed star with a circle around it, inverted. Well, I guess you'd say inverted. Point The top point is the bottom point. Right. Uh, center point's pointed down. To say nothing of the six-pointed star. But... And, you know, is it unfair to call it a pentagram? Well, I mean, it's a five-pointed star in a circle. I don't know what else to call it. The lawyers from Salt Lake City can send me a letter, I guess, if they want to to clarify something. But, yeah, so the same symbols that you would see in masonry, in other forms of esoterica, and then even in modern and early Satanism as well, just happens to appear there. And they don't hide these symbols. They're public, but they explain them differently. You know, they'll have their other, they'll have their explanation behind it. But they, to their credit, at least with that, I mean, that's a pretty bold move because right. they just restored that in the 20th century right. to, to put basically pentagrams around around a public building. But nevertheless, it's a powerful symbol to them, and the meanings attached to these symbols are powerful. So we don't want to make light of them in these sorts of things because through these means, they've been able to convince a lot of people. I mean, what else do you what else do you do you do with that? As Christians, as Orthodox Christians, we understand the power of symbol 
and the power of ritual and what it has, both for good and for ill. Anyway, before we go down that rabbit hole, do we want to say much more about the Mormons? Have we made it clear, folks, how Mormonism is just the kind of the penultimate or the ultimate expression of American esotericism? <laughs> you know, it's it's just there. Is there is there a more clear example of it in American history? Well, and it, and it has the capacity to change that movements like this always do. I mean, it, if you think about the historical dynamics of different religions, Christianity is in its basic historical dynamic, conservative, because it claims to be preserving what is originally given. And we talk about this in terms like the sufficiency of scripture, meaning that what God has revealed in the past is sufficient for faith and life for all time. Esoteric religions almost never work on that dynamic, because even when they're claiming to recapture the past, they will simultaneously introduce new or eclectic or syncretic elements that fundamentally alter things. So the issue is often an issue of, well, I got this from the right person who has this connection or that connection to the past, right? So Aleister Crowley isn't really different from Joseph Smith in claiming to have a unique connection to living or dead figures. The distinctive in Mormonism is that Mormonism also has this weird syncretic thing going on with sort of mainstream American Christianity, where it really does want to appeal to and to be and to also appear to be part of American Christianity. And so it, it's always moving back and forth between its own secrecy and ritualism on the one hand, which is really essential to the functioning of the religion, especially the temple stuff. And on the other hand, a kind of open, I mean, you can go to a Mormon church meeting on a Sunday and see everything. That's not really hidden. And I think part of its power is its combination of appearing to be normal with also these sort of awe-inspiring rituals that do go on in the temple and are a part of sort of the, the strength of being Mormon. Right, and an essential part for them, right. too. They're, if you want to attain the highest heaven in Mormonism, you must complete these rituals. And, and so there is a definite benefit to them as as they see it. So with our last few minutes here, we didn't even get to spiritualism or theosophy or even Wicca. So there's there's all kinds of other routes we could take when when talking about this. But I think we have made it clear why Lutheranism and, and really all of faithful Christianity has rejected these things throughout time. And the sad thing is, is that much as masonry in many denominations is now seen as, oh, well, it's just something people do, we're now starting to see that attitude with Mormonism, where more and more people are wanting to accept it just as another variant of Christianity, which is not true. Yeah. And so you have that. On the other hand, you have the uh, the ones that really try not to borrow from Christianity at all, which Wic- Wic- Wicca would be one which you're also seeing become more and more visible in public religious life. So the Christian now more than ever must use discernment, must avoid these kinds of things, and and frankly to pray against these kinds of things wherever they have influence. Because we we don't want to see Baphomet statues in public. (laughs) And uh, we need some mad lads to go down there and 
toss them in a river or go down there with uh, sledges and stuff. Yeah. In simpler times, that's what would have happened, but it didn't. I'm not advocating that you go do that. Right. I'm talking yeah. about mine, Minecraft here. Allegedly, in Minecraft, right. a person might do such in, a thing. In Minecraft, someone could have possibly done that or considered doing right. it. But a Christian should, in all seriousness, be incensed by this and not like these things. If you have the Spirit of God within you, I think you're naturally repelled by this kind of imagery. You know, and and nevertheless, the forces of the world say, well, it's all the same. Perhaps we have something to learn from them. Even Rome, you know, now basically approves of syncretism, does it not? Right. And so what 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 are we to do? How are we to react? And part of it is simply being aware of what these movements are and why we uh, avoid them. Yeah, and I think that you would do well to take a lesson, and this is going to be strange to pretty much all the listeners, from Charles Finney, because Finney, along with many others who originated in upstate New York, were aware of the spiritual dangers of Freemasonry, both to uh, the church and to the republic. And there was not only an entire anti-Masonic political party that was successful, but there were also many tracts written by people like Finney warning against these syncretic practices that especially the Masons were promoting in that time and place. But later on, the Mormons would do the same, originating from the same place. Usually, these, these esoteric movements come into Christianity by coming alongside it and often pretending to be more Christian or simply supplemental to Christianity. Right. Yeah. They're thieves. They're thieves in the temple. Definitely. Yeah. And that's really what you get. Like Christianity is good, but let me show you even more. Right. Let me expand your knowledge even more. And that's typically what you see in, in masonry a lot, because you'll have men who are, you know, who would be in the eyes of the world considered faithful Christians. And yet they're seduced by masonry over on the side as, you know, as, as a way for them to learn more or, or to just become a better, a better person. Right. So you, you'll even hear that sometimes. I became, you know, I was a Christian, but I became better, a better person through the principles of masonry or whatever. So yeah, very good stuff. Well, Adam, it's been fun. I'm sure in the future we'll unpack more of these things in detail, but uh, thanks for joining us as always. Thank you. And hopefully Zelman will come back. Uh, but, uh, you know, if not, hey, we'll just keep getting uh, weird with it here on Word Fitly Spoken. All right, this has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like it and want to know more, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Adam Kuntz. God love you, and God bless. Portions of the temple ritual resembled Masonic rites that Joseph had observed when a Nauvoo Lodge was organized in March 1842, and that he may have heard about from Hiram, a Mason from New York days. The Nauvoo endowment was first bestowed just six weeks after Joseph's induction. The similarities were marked enough for Heber Kimball to quote Joseph saying that Freemasonry was taken from the priesthood, but has become degenerated. But many things are perfect. Richard Bushman, Joseph Smith, Rough Stone Rolling.